Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Joshua, the new leader of Israel after the death of Moses, he's been tasked with beginning the conquest of Canaan with the heavily fortified city of Jericho, a pagan city that was on land that rightly belonged to the people of God because of God's covenant with Abraham. And this led to another event just 18 miles away. We already read it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while we were, they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Small detail, there was 1,400 years between those two events. Now, if you're like me, you may be wondering... What does the conquest of Jericho have to do with the birth of Jesus Christ and Christmas? I'm glad you asked, because that's what we're going to talk about. And to help supply our answer to that question, we'll see once again our familiar backstage character in our continuing series, Backstage Before Bethlehem, and that is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears many times in the Old Testament. We've seen him in previous weeks now. Not only is the angel of the Lord God himself, but he must be the appearing of the second member of the Trinity, the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, long before his coming to earth as a baby boy. So if you have your Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. If you don't, that's fine. I'll just read the text to you that we'll be looking at. And what I'd like to do this evening is just show you four preparations for the birth of Christ. Four preparations for the birth of Christ. And just for the sake of variety, I'm going to label those four preparations after explaining each one of them to you. So we'll just start with just the first preparation, then we'll label it a little bit later. Look with me at Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. 
Then in the next verses, God promises Joshua that every place his foot treads will be given to Israel, just as God had already promised to Moses. He exhorts Joshua to be strong, to be courageous, and he gives him the means, the method by which he's to follow the Lord in verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now Joshua officially takes command of the massive army of Israel and as his first major act in chapter 2, he sends two spies into Canaan, especially to Jericho. The Israelite army is encamped just across the Jordan River from Jericho and the two spies make their way to the city and they find there in the city a willing participant by hiding in the little house of Rahab the prostitute. And we call her Rahab the prostitute because five times the Bible makes certain to identify her as Rahab the prostitute, a woman who lives the most degrading and immoral life possible for a woman. Well, you remember the story. The king of Jericho found out that They were there, he sent soldiers to get them, but she threw them off the trail by saying they had already left when in fact she had hidden them in the stacks of grain she had on the roof. And listen to her faith, Joshua chapter 2 verse 8, the faith of Rahab. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This humble sinner is now seeking to follow the Lord. And if you know your New Testament, you know that the book of James chapter 2 and the book of Hebrews chapter 11 both hail her for her genuine faith in God. She becomes a hero of the faith. And then she effected the escape of these men since her house was in a very unique location. Verse 15 of chapter 2, then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And of course, when Jericho was to be invaded, Joshua made certain that the promises made to her were kept and that she and her family were spared. And then we get to Joshua chapter 3, and this records the crossing of Israel through the Jordan River in a miraculous miniature recreation of the Red Sea miracle with the waters of the river stopping and piling up so that Israel could cross over on dry ground. And Canaan is terrified Chapter 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. 
But now, before the conquest can begin, God is going to effect a, a huge transition. He's going to do this transition with the people of Israel to remind them that they are to live by faith and that they are to exhibit covenant obedience to him. Chapter 5, verse 2, the first part of the transition. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. All the men born in the wilderness over the past 40 years had not yet been circumcised. And this was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham that he would bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. So God demanded that they get this right and get caught up on this. This is a fairly common practice in the ministry. I've known pastors who come to a new church and they find that there's no official membership. The Lord's table is not observed and there are believers there who have never been baptized. And so one of the first tasks is to get caught up on shepherding, get caught up on obedience. And that's exactly what's happening here in Joshua 5. The second part of the transition that God effects for Israel is they participated in their very first Passover here in the land. They ate of the food that was already growing in the land. And then something momentous happened, something that hadn't happened in 40 years. The manna which had been falling for them six days a week for the past four decades, it stopped. It came to a stop. Chapter 6, verse 12, And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 12, And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now there's no going back. They must trust the Lord to give them the land that he was going to give them. And now they're about to get ready to take on this small but mightily fortified city of Jericho. So the first preparation for the birth of Christ, let's give it a label. Let's just call it groundwork. Groundwork is what's been happening so far. Let's look now at the second preparation for the birth of Christ. And this brings us to our very noteworthy meeting between Joshua and an armed man. The angel of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then in chapter 6, the angel of the Lord will give instructions and tell tell Joshua what's going to happen with Jericho. Now, this is clearly the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate son of God, because of the tremendous similarity, the very same sort of meeting that happened just 40 years earlier, with Moses at the burning bush in which Moses also is told to remove his sandals because wherever God stands, that place is holy. The exact language used here with a drawn sword in his hand, this is only found two other times in the Old Testament referring to the angel of the Lord. We saw last week in Numbers 22 where the angel of the Lord stood before Balaam. And then in 1 Chronicles 21.16, we see the angel of the Lord standing before David, threatening Israel because of David's sin. Why did he stand before Balaam? Because Balaam was sinning. Why did he stand before David? Because David was sinning. This is not the case with Joshua, but one thing we do know, 
that in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord stands before you and he's armed with his sword out, tension has built. Something is going to happen. But unlike those two other meetings, this meeting is meant to give comfort and encouragement. Now, verse 13 gives a very interesting turn of phrase. Joshua is close to Jericho and behold, a man standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. This Hebrew word behold, what it does is it changes the perspective from the all-knowing perspective of the writer to the more limited perspective of just Joshua. In fact, we could paraphrase this. He looked up and whoa, there was a guy there with a sword. That's Joshua's perspective. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but Joshua is a soldier, and by God's grace, he was one calm, cool dude. Joshua didn't keep his distance. He walked up to this armed man and asked him the question, are you for us or for our adversaries? Pretty bold concerning, considering how imposing the angel of the Lord was. He noticed the angel of the Lord, the pre-Bethlehem Jesus Christ. He answers, no, not no, I am not for you or no, I am not for your adversaries. Just no. What's he saying? He's saying the question you asked is irrelevant. I have more relevant information for you, which was I am the commander of the army of the Lord. That's what Joshua needed to know. Now, a little side note here. We have to determine a little interpretive issue. Was he saying that he is the true commander of the army of Israel or the commander of the celestial army, the heavenly army fighting for Israel? Well, several times in the Old Testament, we see Israel's army labeled the armies of the Lord. Exodus 12, Exodus 7, 1 Samuel 17. But we compare that to the 250 times or so that God himself is called the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. We, we sing this in the wonderful hymn by Luther, a mighty fortress, Lord Sabaoth, his name. 1 Kings twenty-two nineteen, Micaiah, the prophet, proclaimed, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host, the armies of heaven, standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Psalm 103, beginning in verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, all you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all of his hosts, his ministers who do his will. So we should lean very heavily toward the angel of the Lord saying that he's the commander of the heavenly army, the army of the angels. A couple of reasons for this. First of all, he didn't replace Joshua. He didn't say you're fired, sit on the bench. Joshua is still in command over Israel's army. And secondly, we could look at the original language. The emphasis in Hebrew here is the fact that the commander of the Lord's army is in a different and totally unique realm and sphere. Literally in Hebrew, it says, No, for I, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. The focus is not on the army. The focus is on the commander. It's on him. He has a divine nature. He has a divine mission. Therefore, he commands a divine army. Now, Joshua recognizes the angel of the Lord's authority. He bows down to him. He worships. And he did what the true worshiper does. He announced his intentions to obey. What does my Lord say to his servant? And did you notice the angel of the Lord's message of help and encouragement? He says, now I have come. Now I have come. 
And the commander of the Lord's army, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate son of God, told Joshua that he's in the presence of God. Take off your sandals. The ground that you stand upon is holy. Now, if this is a meeting of encouragement and there's a battle about to happen, we might expect the angel of the Lord to say something like, I'll be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Why does he not say this? Well, because God has already given Joshua this promise. Joshua 1.5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So the lesson here is not so much about the battle that is to come. The first lesson is that Joshua needs to be personally in relationship with the angel of the Lord as a worshiper. He needs to recognize the holiness and the might of God. Joshua was not just to ride the effects of the previous wonderful ministry of Moses. He was to personally have faith in, personally have trust in the faithfulness of God to him as the new leader of Israel. So this was a personal interaction for the benefit of Joshua. And like Moses, Joshua is given the pledge of success Because if Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem 18 miles away in 1,400 years, Israel must be successful in taking the land. It must happen. And so we'll call this second preparation for the birth of Christ, we'll just call this grace. Grace, the angel of the Lord, will go before Joshua with his armies to fight for him. So far, the preparations for the birth of Christ have included groundwork and grace Let's look at the third preparation for the birth of Christ, and then we'll label it in a moment. Now, this takes us to this very unusual conquest itself. Let's pick it up again on the seventh day. Israel has been marching around Jericho for the past week with trumpets blowing constantly, chapter 6, verse 13. Now in verse 15 of chapter 6, Joshua 6, 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now we need to pay very close attention to one little tiny detail. Verse 20. The wall fell down flat so that the people went, here it is, up into the city. Remember that detail. The little word up is very important. So keep that stashed away in your memory. What exactly happened at Jericho at this moment? In the 1950s, Dr. Kathleen Kenyon, a British archaeologist, she excavated much of Jericho and she refused to believe the evidence that she herself dug up. 
And so she wrote off the evidence that she cataloged because she misdated her findings and she said that the biblical account wasn't possible, showing supposedly a, a contradiction between archaeology and the Bible. That never lasts, by the way. In the 1990s, a much more thorough excavation by Dr. John Garstang gave exquisite detail of exactly what did happen. Jericho was basically an impregnable city. It was built on top of a hill, and we have to do a little bit of uh, architecture here, and it had two walls. At the base of the hill was the first wall, and it was comprised of thick stone, and it was a retaining wall, 12 to 15 feet high. This was the wall that kind of held the hill in place. If you have a little, uh, a little yard in the front or the back with a little retaining wall that holds the dirt behind it, that's where the retaining wall is. But this one was 12 to 15 feet high. On top of that retaining wall, another wall about 20 to 26 feet high was built. This was just built of mud bricks. Inside that first wall, then you go up a very steep hill, and at the top of the hill is a second massive wall. So you can sort of picture here, you've got two walls like this. Here's the first one and the second one, and you would go up a steep hill to get to the second one. What does this mean? Well, it means that an invading army would first have to get over the first wall, which was as high as 41 feet total. And then they would have to climb up the hill and go to a second wall, which started 46 feet from the surface, from the base, and went 20 or 30 feet higher than that. This was impregnable in this time period. Now, the prime real estate in Jericho was inside the second upper wall, up in the small city itself. This was where you had all the best places to live. The less prime real estate was the overflow area between the two walls. Inhabitants from all around Canaan had now come to the safety of the city. They were staying in this less desirable overflow area. Basically, this area between the two walls, these were the slums of Jericho. And this was, by the way, where Rahab's house was. Between the two walls with her house built right against the outer wall so that she could then let the spies out of that wall. Now, what was the evidence that Kathleen Kenyon refused to acknowledge? By the way, some of us here have stood on that wall. We've seen this with our own eyes in Israel. Here's the evidence. Remember, the lower wall had two parts to it. This bottom retaining wall, 12 to 15 feet high, which held the hill in place and a massive wall built on top of that as well. When the trumpets blew, here's the evidence that archaeology has proven. It would have been easier just to read the Bible, but we praise the Lord for archaeology. When the trumpets blew and the Israelites shouted, both the upper wall and the top section of the lower wall fell. Not inward, but outward. So look what happened. It went boom, like this. And what did that do? The pieces of the wall falling outward, sliding down the hill, past the retaining wall, falling flat. It fell over like a tree. It didn't crumple straight down. It fell over like a tree. It formed a 15-foot high ramp from the ground all the way, what's the key word, up. And all the soldiers of Israel had to do was run up a ramp that had been made for them. Israel went up into the city because God made this instant ramp. By the way, the implication of the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army saying, now I have come, is of course that he would utilize his heavenly army for this effort. 
I would imagine then at the trumpet blast and the shouts of the people, the unseen armies of the Lord come screaming down from heaven and batter these walls and knock them down flat. And they fight for Israel. God's people were faithful to obey, even to the smallest detail of his instruction. Remember, they were commanded to take only the precious metals for the Lord's treasury, but everything else was to be devoted for, to destruction, not taken. The excavations at Jericho showed huge store, stores of grain and food. It was right after harvest time, and the city was stocked up presumably in preparation for a siege. So why is it important that the city was left with full storehouses of food? This is absolutely unique in the history of archaeology because conquered cities never have huge stores of food left. Why? Because the conquerors take it. But the manna has just stopped and yet God commanded that all the food within the city, everything be devoted to destruction Israel had no food supply of its own, and yet it walked away from a city filled with food in obedience to the Lord. By the way, look with me at Joshua 6.24. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Archaeology has confirmed that the city was burned to a crisp. So what shall we call this third preparation for the birth of Christ? There's no reason we can't have a little fun. So we'll call this third preparation gravity. How about that? Helped along by the powerful forces of the Lord's army, of course. It is literally the first landslide victory. Don't say I said that. So we've seen preparations for the birth of Christ, groundwork, grace, and gravity. Let's do one more preparation for the birth of Christ. What about poor Rahab? Her house was between the two walls built into the outer wall. That was not the place to be. God is faithful to her. Chapter 6, verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. Then they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. Did you notice how kind and tender Joshua is? He sends the only two men that she would recognize. To go and get her. But how did Rahab survive? In 1907, some German archaeologists digging around the north side of Jericho found one little section of the wall that had not collapsed. With all the rest of the walls all the way around, and it's divided archaeologically into 13 sections, one little section did not collapse. They dug further into that section and they found a couple of little houses built up against the walls with some windows in the wall. One little place. God was faithful to Rahab and she would become, in fact, an Israelite herself. Verse 25, But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Why is this an important preparation for the coming birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem? Matthew chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ was descended from King David, whose father was Jesse, whose father was Obed, whose father was Boaz. Boaz is said to be the son of Salmon, and the exact phrase is, by Rahab. 
What that means is that there may have been the common practice of skipping some generations in the genealogies, but it doesn't make any difference because whether Boaz came right after Rahab or a little, a few generations later, the fact is, is that Rahab appears in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the baby born in Bethlehem. And so again, in the spirit of a little fun, the preparations for the birth of Jesus, groundwork, grace, gravity. We call her Rahab. Jesus would call her Grandma. That's what he would call her. And you might say, you mean the Lord Jesus Christ is descended from an immoral woman, descended from the lowest of the low, that he's descended from somebody that we would look down on as the sinner of all sinners? Yes. Jesus Christ is descended from a forgiven sinner who repented and worshipped the true and living God. Rahab, the prostitute, living in the slums of Jericho, a hopeless life, ready to be destroyed by Israel, now goes down in history as a saved woman whom God forgave and in fact gave the privilege of being part of the birth of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was born, It was to live a perfect life, to trade in to God for your wretched, sinful life. And it was to die the cruel death on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. You see, the good news of Christmas, the good news of the gospel is exactly the same as what the angel of the Lord told Joshua. Now I have come. And the commander of the Lord's army didn't come to earth this time with a drawn sword. He came with outstretched arms to receive the nails of the cross. He didn't come to push down walls. He came to walk of his own power outside the walls of Jerusalem to be crucified on a cruel cross. And when faced with an execution he didn't deserve, the commander of the Lord's army, Lord Sabaoth, his name, he did not call for the 12 legions of angels he could have. They could have saved him instantly. I can only imagine the armies of heaven with their swords drawn on the precipice of heaven, yearning and desiring to come and save their commander. But the army of God only moves when the commander orders. And Isaiah 53 says he was silent. At Christmas time, we love the hymn, Silent Night, Holy Night. But you see, the real silent night, the one that saves, is the night that Jesus was silent when he could have defended himself at his trial. And silent when he could have called upon 12 legions of angels to save him and relieve him of the burden of the cross. He could have called the same angels who did, in fact, come to the aid of Joshua. But because this time the angel of the Lord gave no command, because this time he left the angels in heaven This time he faced the cross alone. Because of that, we are now conquered, as it were. We are conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we serve him. And now, can I put it this way? We are Rahab. We have been taken out of the city, the life destined for destruction. And we have been brought into God's nation. Why? Because just like the angel of the Lord... One Christmas, many years ago, now I have come. Now I have come. Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, the Bible is filled with 
the glories of one redemptive story. One redemptive story which begins and ends with the Son of God. Begins with the prophecy of His coming all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We see the angel of the Lord all through the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, effecting the redemptive plan of God and, and making it happen such that the birth of Christ in Bethlehem at exactly the right time would take place so that his life could be lived, so that his death could be given to us, so that he might then be raised from the dead, that he might ascend into heaven, that he might intercede for all who would come to faith in him, such that someday he would return and establish his kingdom on this earth. Our Father, we thank you for the redemptive plan that has been so perfectly drawn out, so perfectly executed. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I would pray for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who has not asked the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy, who has not asked the one who would have the sword drawn in judgment to put his sword away and instead pay for the penalty of our sins on the cross. I would pray for one who has not come to saving faith in Christ, that they may find in Christ a redeemer, a savior, and a friend. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.